have Michael Schroeder, founder and CEO of Roundstone, a successful captive program. Mike is a lawyer by training and has spent over 18 years beating the drum of captives in getting employers to be self-insured and has become an overnight success, as all successful ideas look like to an untrained eye. Mike has been there talking about captives for a long time and has a lot of great stories to tell. Captives have been growing rapidly in the last three years, yet we are far, far away from maturity in this market. You are going to learn on this podcast some valuable insights about captives, in particular, the market landscape and how to think about the role of captives. What are the components of a captive? How to evaluate different types of captives and some of the challenges the captives face. This program is brought to you by the Healthcare Administrators Association, HCAA. For over 40 years, HCAA has supported third-party administrators and the self-insured employer industry through educational opportunities from leading industry experts. For information on joining HCAA, please visit our website, hcaa.org. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar, and I'm on a mission to bring value to the healthcare industry through improved transparency. And my goal from this podcast is to give you one aha moment that you can implement in your business, whether you're a TPA, broker, or an employer. In my day job, I run a company called Zaki Point Health that helps self-insured employers and their employees provide price transparency, direction, and value by delivering a digital front door for the member that proactively steers the members. Please like or share this podcast on your favorite podcasting tool so we can bring together a community of like-minded professionals. We are pleased to have our podcast sponsor, Ikigai Growth Partners, a valued sponsor of multiple HCA activities. Ikigai is a growth consulting firm that works with two sister venture funds to find and support the growth of innovative new companies in the areas of healthcare technology and tech-enabled services. If you're a part of the self-insurance industry and are looking to innovate, you might benefit from a relationship with Ikagai. Now let's jump into a conversation today. Great, Mike. I'm super excited to have you on our podcast today. Your story has been a phenomenal journey in building a captive. I actually want to start with that. I want to hear a little bit more of why did you start a captive and what triggered you to do this so long ago? Now people probably think, wow, you're in the right place, but you've probably been thinking about this for a long time. So please tell our audience, why did you start a captive? I had been in the captive space, but on the property and casualty side, and I had seen what a group captive could deliver to employers, and in particular, middle market employers, the idea of what information and control and just the ability to have a better outcome with insurance. And also the idea of a a peer group and, and how that could improve upon the outcomes. And so those ideas, which were working exceptionally well in property and casualty, I wanted to bring over to health insurance. And I thought that, hey, this is something I think could make some sense. And so way back In 2005, that's what we did. And we introduced a stop-loss group captive to the market. Wow, 2005. So you must have been out there in the chilly cold for many, many years trying to push this idea out there. Yeah, yeah. You know, I joke. I was a street corner evangelist up until healthcare reform. 
passed. And it was a good idea, but there wasn't a lot of traction. There wasn't a lot of market demand. And with the rising cost of healthcare, that's really changed. And now it's become a go-to better alternative for employers that want to fund their employee benefits. It's Mm -hmm. changed a lot in the last, what is that, 17 or so years. Let's put a little bit of context for our listeners. Two questions. Let's start with, what is the state of affairs today? How fast is this captive market growing? What are you seeing there? And then another follow-on question from there, I want to like then take people back to, there's a lot of confusion about what captives are and whether they steal business from brokers and stop-loss carriers. I want to like delve into that a bit more. But let's start with why should we pay attention to captives now? How fast is this growing? They're a big part of the rapid growth of employers who are self-funding their employee benefits. The stop-loss market now is an over $30 billion market. And not too long ago, maybe less than 10 years ago, it was less than half of that. So it is a rapidly expanding market. And the captives are a big part of that because they're fitting into that middle market space, employers with anywhere from 50 to 500 employees. And what's exciting about a captive, and this is maybe where some of the confusion is, captives don't take one self-insured or self-funded employer and move them into a different stop-loss arrangement. More often than not, captives are providing a bridge for a fully insured or fixed-cost funding vehicle to move into self-funding and allowing those employers to benefit from self-funding. So it's a catalyst, captives are, and it's a driver of the overall market moving to self-funding. And I venture to say that captives of that $31 billion of stop-loss premium, captives are more than 10% possibly as much as 15% of that marketplace. So they're a big part of why it's growing. And how, if you're looking into the future, how big could this market be? Can you put another kind of wraparound context of where this could go? When you look at how many employers have between 50 and 500 employees in the United States, it's more than half a million. And 1% of that market is equivalent to a billion and a half dollars of stop-loss premium. Just 1%. So that's where it could go. 10% of the middle market is if that was in a captive program of some sort, you're looking at billions of dollars. So it's a long road. It's a long runway. So when you say half a million falling into the 50 to 500 employee life, these are the number of companies. One could argue all of them should be self-insured through a captive arrangement, or if they become really risk-taking, they can even go without a captive. So all of them could be not yeah. just 1%. Well, I would certainly argue that. But uh, yeah, it's I do believe it's a better alternative than a traditional fixed cost where you have no insider control and you have costs that are going up double digits. So yeah, I think any employer in that space should really look very closely at self-funding with a captive. And yeah, every one of them could do that for that matter. Okay, so I want to understand a bit more how it adds value to that middle market employer. What kind of costs are you seeing being defrayed by moving from a fully insured to a this captive arrangement, whether it's immediately or 
based on maybe in the future other value add that you add to this. But let's start with what is the immediate value to that employer through a captive arrangement? Well, like anything in business, if you don't have information and you don't have data to help you figure out what is driving costs, you're most likely going to be in an environment in which those costs are going up pretty dramatically. And that is the fate of employers who are in a fixed cost, fully insured product. They do not get the data necessary to take control over their employee benefit plan. And so the first and foremost, like any captive, whether it's health captive or property and casualty, the ability to get information and get control opens the door to savings. And so, so many employers, and today, particularly with things like the escalating cost of drugs and pharmacy, if you don't have a good line of sight into how drugs are being delivered to your population and to your employee base, your costs are going to run out of control. And that's what the captives do. It opens the door for these employers to self-fund, gain the insight into what is driving costs, and then give them also the control to manage those costs. And when you do that, the self-funding captive environment keeps the savings with the employer, with the community, and the outcomes are better than what they were doing before. Hmm. And then how do you, when you construct a captive, whether it's your captive, Roundstone, whether it's others, what are the components of it that really deliver that impact, cost savings, or risk reduction? I think the number one theme and the predominant objective is alignment. You have to be in a program and build a program with the objective of managing costs, high quality health care at a reasonable and fair cost. And the decisions around the captive structure have to all be aligned with that employer objective. So that's number one. And then when you look at that structure, you certainly have some financial considerations. Items like the cost of admission or the collateral trying to drive that as low as possible. Items like the return fund, the amount of money that can come back to you, or the loss fund, some people call that. You want that as high as possible. So there's those financial metrics. And then there's operational metrics in terms of the flexibility for cost containment choices, the ability when you get your return of underwriting, and essentially the ability of you to, to control choices on things like your TPA and your PBM. So there's both financial considerations and operational considerations. But along on both of those areas, you have to ask the question, was this decision made with the employer's objective in mind? And is it aligned with that objective of quality, affordable health care? That's really important. And so when you say with those objectives in mind, and, and I think you touched on this, the metrics almost, how much of the money is returned to them? Can you share some numbers on what you're seeing? What should a 100 employee life employer should experience over a year? Yeah, so you want to be in a, a captive in which its loss fund is more than 65% of the stop loss premium. And the higher, the better. In the case of our captive at Roundstone, that number is up at 70 cents. Mm -hmm. And so there's a great opportunity for that employer to realize savings on its stop loss premium, which would otherwise be fixed. 
So that's a metric you want to pay attention to. You want collateral or the price of admission. You want that below 10%. And in Roundstone's case, it's down at 7%. But we've seen captives that have collateral as high as 15 or 20% of the stop loss premium. And we've seen lost funds as low as 50 cents. And in those financial metrics, it's going to be really hard to, to realize the savings on the overall cost of that health plan. So those are things to pay attention to. And then operationally, as I mentioned, there's a whole variety of, it's primarily retaining control and flexibility and making sure you're not forced to engage with someone just because they happen to be paying the promoter of that particular captive. That's something that's misaligned with your objective of building your health plan that's best for you and its objective of cost containment. Mike, maybe I didn't fully understand that the second part on this operational Are you saying sometimes they're not aligned, the broker who's selling that is not aligned? Help us understand. If an employer listening to this or a TPA listening to this, they're trying to decipher through this, how to work with their captive. Yeah, I think the question is, if the choice or the control over which solution provider, whether it's a TPA, a PBM, or a cost containment solution is not up to that employer and is being made by the promoter of the captive or the advisor, the question needs to be answered. Why are you promoting this particular solution provider? Are you getting paid by them? Because if they are, there is a conflict and there's a misalignment. And perhaps the best PBM is not being recommended. Rather, the PBM is being recommended because it's paying that particular promoter. That needs to be the place the employer gets an alignment with the captive it chooses so that it knows it's getting the best outcome, it's getting the best solution set. It's not just getting a TPA or a cost containment vendor that happens to have a financial arrangement with the promoter. So let me try to put this in a bit more numbers. So when an employer is fully insured, there are commissions, presumably the broker is making on the insurance part of it. On a 100 employee life, let's say, employer, how much of the premium is commission that the broker is getting. And when that switches into a captive model, you talked about 50 cents to the dollar is coming back to the employer to to 68 to 69 cents. In that scenario also, if you could explain what is the difference, whether it's Roundstone or others, just want to get these numbers a bit more clear in my head. In the fully insured market, most of the advisors are making anywhere from 3 to 6% of that total health plan cost or that total fixed cost premium as a commission. So three, perhaps three up front and an override of another three. Mm-hmm. That's pretty typical. When an employer moves into a self-funded arrangement, most often the way we do it is the advisor's consulting fee is outside of the premium. It's part of the overall health plan cost, uh, but it's set forth transparently in the proposal as a consulting fee. And it usually stays in that range of that 3%. It usually converts to a per employee per month number in that 30 to $35 range. So there's not a real change there, but what changes is the override, the next 3%, a good structured captive is going to struggle to provide an override because it reduces the loss fund. 
And so if an override of another 3% is provided, or even higher, 5 10% on stop-loss premium, your loss fund is going to go down. It's an added expense, and there's going to be less money for that employer to receive back. So some advisors hesitate to move into a self-funded market because they worry that their income will go down. Now, what we try to share with them is that when you actually look at the captive model and you look at the close rates you're able to to develop when you build a relationship with a strong captive, they're usually several times that of traditional insurance, fully insured. And you look at the renewal rates, the consistency of the business in the 90% range. Over the long term, the advisor will actually be ahead and then in a traditional model, but that's a hard, a lot of folks don't understand that. They look at things in the short term and they're wed to that override model that, that's prevalent in the fully insured market. And if you bring that over to the captive market, you're most likely going to end up in a captive with a higher expense load, a smaller loss fund and a lower return for the employer's. Those overrides got to come out of somebody's pocket, and it's typically the employer. So that's misalignment right there. And this has been a lot of excitement about captives and number of new entrants. How do you differentiate in the market? Well, what I've been talking about, we make decisions based on what's best for the employer. And I'll give you an example. We recently negotiated a reduction in the expense load with our reinsurance partners. And instead of keeping those savings with us, we put it into the employer, into the captive, into the loss fund, and the loss fund went up and the collateral went down. That's that aligning with the objective of the employer. We we do not take revenue from any other service provider like a PBM or cost containment solution. So that's fairly unique in the market, and we do believe it's a differentiator. Now, it plays out in the metrics I shared with you. We have the lowest collateral in the industry at 7%. We have the highest loss fund in the industry at 69, 70 cents on the stop loss dollar. So those are all objective measures of the fact we are trying to align very with the employer's goal of quality, affordable healthcare. But that's how we differentiate ourselves. Hmm. Obviously, it's a great financial incentive. The financial metrics are there. As you build these captives, by bringing different types of employers. What are some of the other things you imagine happening, whether it's you doing it or others in this captive industry? What kind of programs, what kind of solutions you're adding to the captive to reduce the risks and bring that benefit to a smaller self-funded employer that sometimes the Walmarts of the world would be otherwise getting? Great question. It opens the door to data analytics and finding out what areas in your group you can focus on. Perhaps you're above the benchmark in your diabetic population, or perhaps the utilization of primary care is not where it should be, or perhaps the specialty pharmacy utilization is above benchmark. So data analytics will inform Roundstone and your advisor and the employer on things that can be done or brought to bear, whether it's a a specialty pharmacy program to help reduce that cost, whether it's digital health focused on mental health or a diabetes program that's kind of coupled with supply and also management. So when you self-fund, you get information. And with that information, you have tools 
levers and opportunities to save money. We're really starting to go strong down the path now with our analytics with the social determinants of health, looking Mm -hmm. at gender and ethnic background and so on and so forth to help us identify high-risk factors, whether it's cancer, very expensive episodes of care and helping us then reach out to those groups and and, and educate them on things they can do proactively prior Mm. to there being an event. It's all about managing your plan. Um, Obviously, Roundstone has a lot of those resources. We make it as easy as possible for the employer and the advisor to implement, but we do let them know about the information and give them the chance to save some money. Let me press on this because those employers are quite small. The HR person is spread across a lot of things. Even the broker, might I say, is not that sophisticated selling into that market. So they don't have the capacity, the resources, the talent to look at the data, make those decisions, keep tracking it. So is it all of that falling on you as a captive manager? Yeah, we have a whole cost containment team that's in the marketplace identifying solutions that can fit. Uh, As we analyze and vet these solutions, we're very aware of the customer and what they're able to utilize and what they're able to implement. That's one of the key considerations we make. Is this something the members will be able to implement and utilize? But we do all that legwork. And if we don't see a clear ROI, if we don't see no fixed cost or a low fixed cost, then that's not something we're going to bring to the table with our employers. We're aware of the middle market and the fact that they don't have a lot of time and a lot of resources to figure out, hey, what is the best digital health solution for muscular skeletal challenges? They, Mm -hmm. in fact, might not even recognize that they're above the benchmark with MSK. But if they're with an organization like Roundstone providing them their employee benefits, then we can help them recognize that, share with them that data, and then give them a couple turnkey tools to help them better manage their particular challenge. But it's unique to them. This is not a one-size-fits-all, meaning you join the captive and everybody all of a sudden gets bombarded with MSK digital health solutions. It's not like that. We really want to customize it for the ones that need it the most because we understand as a middle market, they, they only have so much bandwidth and so much capacity. So then your role is effectively kind of that risk mitigator health plan where you are looking through populations who need certain programs and you are making those decisions to promote those within the overall big captive population. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll respond if someone has a question or a concern, but uh, we are doing outreach. And some of this too is just uniform. We're very aware of the mental health challenge today. And so there's a lot of digital solutions that we have vetted and are ready to go. And part of the value is just that we've looked at a lot of them. We know Mm -hmm. which ones are priced effectively and which ones are not unnecessarily adding a a fixed cost where maybe a fixed cost is not needed. Yeah, we view that as value add. Hey, you're self-funded. You have a high variable opportunity to get money back. Let us give you some tools to help you do that. And we view that as part of our value proposition. And so what sort of trends are you seeing in the data? You obviously mentioned mental health is a big category and musculoskeletal you talked about. Any other trends to manage, whether it's the risks, whether it's the costs, whether it's the utilization of certain expensive services? Clearly, specialty pharmacy is a rising cost area 
So you better have a, a strategy to deal with those when they arise. Anything with a digital solution that makes it more convenient for people to get care and get rehabilitated, those are all trends and rising solution sets that are very good. Yeah. We continue to pursue primary care solutions that make sure folks can have a primary care relationship that's very strong. And then best in class, and you start getting into some more complicated things like high performance networks and centers of excellence, but that's at a whole nother level. But that is becoming much more common. And so Mike, you know, you've been in the industry three years out. What do you see for the captive industry? What innovations, what kind of changes, what kind of growth do you anticipate? I can still see it growing. I see it's becoming more of a a mainstream funding solution for the middle market that is rapidly occurring. I see there's going to be a lot better use of member advocacy and member digital interaction to help with the navigating of the networks and the care. It's a little clunky right now, the mm-hmm. integration between the providers and the pharmacy and the best solutions there with the members is not as efficient as it can be. I think that those digital advocacy tools and AI, I think, are going to play a big role. And so it'll become even easier for a member to find themselves with the provider that is the highest quality and is the most cost efficient under their plans. It's going to become mainstream, in my opinion. And I think it's this area of navigating care with the provider system. It has to become a little easier from a patient navigation point of view. And would that be something captives will be doing, you reckon, or they'll outsource this, or whether they'll be key deciders, but they might figure out a way to deliver that navigation and deliver that member experience? I think that's a self-funded marketplace development, and I do think it's going to be a solution, a patient advocacy tool that's better integrated with some of the provider systems and the provider systems that are better integrated with the patient uh, navigation tools. So it's not necessarily going to emanate. The captives are one player in this self-funded marketplace and are one catalyst for control and innovation that is driving it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a captive entity that creates what I'm talking about. And the other thing, trend I'm seeing is a lot of money is being poured into this. A lot of interest is there in investing in this space by private equity firms to other funds as well. What do you see from your lens? Are you seeing that? And if so, what will that do to the market? It's interesting. You know, I remember going to a healthcare conference 10 years ago and the exhibit hall was old school, desks and tables and banners. And I went to one just recently and man, it looked like a Hollywood movie (laughs) exhibit hall. It was so fancy. So that's clearly the impact of private equity. There's a lot more money in it. They're still trying to figure out the business models that can be sustainable, that can grow, that can make some money. The networks, the PPO, the national networks really have a chokehold on a lot of innovation and are a real kind of blockade for a lot of innovation. So the companies that are trying to break through that blockade don't always succeed. And the private equity folks haven't quite figured out how to navigate through that. But I think everyone's going to keep trying and you chip away at it. That's our philosophy at Roundstone. 
we know we can't just completely overcome the network blockade, but we can chip away at it and we can look for opportunities to do better. And I think over time, it will become more effective. But our competitors, certainly one of them is private equity owned. And there's a lot of startups that are private equity in just the captive space, let alone the point solutions and everything else. Yeah. Well, there is going to be a lot of change there, a lot of exciting things, I'm sure, through that. You've thrown a lot of really valuable insights here. Mike, one big question or one last question. What three steps would you recommend to a TPA or a broker who wants to benefit from captives like yours or wants to go out and find a different way of delivering the benefit of captives? What would you recommend to them? Someone said to me recently, hey, when you've seen one captive, you've seen one captive. If you're a TPA or if you're a broker advisor, just because they say they're a stop-loss captive, that doesn't necessarily mean they're a really good solution for your clients. And I do think you need to spend some time. And we have roundstoneuniversity.org. You can learn about the things to look at in analyzing an efficient captive. We have a medical captive forum on May 1st and 2nd. That's going to be in New Orleans that you can learn about what makes an efficient captive. But you really have to understand when I bring up you want low collateral, understand why that's important. You want a high loss fund, understand why that's important. You want control and the ability to impact cost savings with different strategies and PBMs. Unfortunately, you do have to become a little bit of a an expert in what makes a captive work and what it doesn't. We try hard to simplify it for you. And I'm always available if anybody ever wants to call. But they are not all created equal. They are mm-hmm. different. But some of our sales guys will say, hey, 10 years ago, people would ask me, what is a captive? Today, when they talk to someone, they say, what makes your captive different or what makes your captive better? So a TPA and an advisor, they need to be able to answer those questions and not just say, oh, it's a stop-loss captive. It's all the same because that is just not the case. So how can listeners connect with you and get your input or start working with you? If you come to our website, Roundstone Insurance, you can connect with us or you just type in Roundstone and we'll come up or Mike Schroeder in Roundstone and we'll come up. There's ways to get in hold of us. Always available. And again, Roundstone University and our captive form are two great educational resources that are free to people and are just a wealth of kind of the stuff we're talking about here. What are trends? They're very education focused. They're not a sales piece. It's more about hey, what makes a good PBM or what makes a good TPA or what's a data analytics tool that can help you save money, things like that. And then along the way, obviously, what is a good captive and what makes it a good captive? There you have it, our listeners. Hopefully you will get to listen to this podcast on Roundstone University's website too. I really appreciate, Mike, you taking the time. This has been a fantastic conversation, high intensity on captives. Any kind of call to action that you want to share or you want to throw out there for listeners? No, I want to thank you, Ramesh. This is great. You do this kind of thing. Our business is all about education. We view that as the biggest challenge we have. We have to just educate the market. And I would encourage those who share my mission of quality, affordable health care and alignment with employers to work with us because it's fun to have a job and a mission that is about fixing a system that hasn't worked real well for a lot of employers and their employees. And it's really rewarding when you see it work and fix and give them a better opportunity. 
uh, with yeah. what their business is doing. So it's a fun place to get involved with, and I'd encourage you to do so. Yeah, no, Mike, like you, I get super excited about how we can bring transparency, direction, and value to our industry and self-funded employers. And these educational seminars and sessions, podcasts are not just great for our listeners. They are fantastic ways for me to learn and others who are involved. So I really do appreciate you taking the time and uh, some of the insights that you've shared. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. And thank you so much. Yes, thank you. And I would like to thank Ikigai Growth, our sponsor of this show. Please join us again for another podcast in the series brought to you by HCAA's Voices of Self-Funding. Please like and share so we can build a community of like-minded people and tell us about topics that we should bring to you next. Please watch your email for updates on upcoming guests. I'm your host, Ramesh Kumar of DocuPoint Health.